The CBF Podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. Hey, podcast listeners, this is your host, Andy Hale. We are thrilled to bring you another year of CBF's podcast with a cavalcade of brilliant guests such as Father Tom Reese, Washington Post's Sarah Pulliam Bailey, Mark Charles, Soong Chen Ra, and Matthew Paul Turner. And that's just skimming the surface of the first few months. As you know, last fall, we launched the Podcast Listener Support Project. This is an opportunity for you to connect closer with the podcast and premier guest. By becoming a podcast supporter, you can join me on an interview with premier guests such as Walter Brueggemann, Sarah Bessie, and Brian McLaren. So check out cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. This week's CBF Podcast Conversation is brought to you by Equal Exchange. Equal Exchange is a 33-year-old fair trade organization that works with small-scale farmers in 20 countries to bring you organic coffee, tea, chocolate, cocoa, and nuts. Serve high-quality coffee during fellowship that matches your congregation's values with prices starting at $0.10 a cup. Fundraising with fairly traded products at an Easter or Christmas event. Equal Exchange also offers a line of products from Palestinian farmers in the West Bank, including organic olive oil, moftul, frika, and dates. For more information, visit equalexchange.coop backslash interfaith. That's equalexchange.coop backslash interfaith. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Father Thomas Reese. Father Reese serves as a senior analyst for the Religion News Service. He previously served as the editor for the American Magazine. Along with serving as a Jesuit priest for nearly 45 years, he can also claim that he is a Billiken and also an Oski. Uh, we'll get to that here in a little bit. Father Reese, thank you for joining the conversation. 
Good to be with you. Thank you. Now, you joined the Jesuit order in 1962. Um, walk us through your sense of calling to the order and to become a priest. Oh, that's a long story. Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, you know, I became, uh, you know, my first uh, interest in becoming a priest is like, uh, you know, people uh, who get married. Sometimes you get married for the wrong reason, but then you, it gets better. You know, I would say my vocation started for all the wrong reasons. I was in second grade, which is, of course, no time to make a decision about a vocation. But in any way, the sister in the class, uh, I was in a Catholic grammar school, and sister said one day to all the second graders, what's the most important job in the whole world? And of course, we had people saying policemen, firemen, and uh, some of the smarter kids said president of the United States. And sister kept saying, no, no, no. And finally, she told us that being a priest was the most important job in the whole world. Well, when I heard that, I decided, heck, I'm going to become a priest. <laughs> so... I my vocation started for all the wrong reasons. It's, it's a classic example of pride, arrogance, clericalism, and every wrong reason for being a priest because it's the most important job in the whole world. Uh, and uh, as I grew older, I think uh, my uh, vocation matured. But still, I entered the uh, Jesuits uh, right out of high school in 1962. We don't do that anymore. We uh, now consider that too young an age for someone to uh, uh, make a permanent life uh, commitment. Uh, and so today, most of our seminarians are uh, uh, graduates of college. Uh, most and some uh, have been working uh, what we would call the real world. Uh, for a while, so that when they decide to become a Jesuit, become a uh, priest, uh, they've, they've had a, a wider experience. They know what they're giving up. They know what they're choosing. Uh, so, uh, but in any case, I entered in 1962, uh, which was, of course, uh, right out of high school. And you have to remember also that I entered before the Second Vatican Council. Now, for us Catholics, the Second Vatican Council was a huge turning point uh, in the life of the church. It, uh, before the Second Vatican Council, we were still fighting all the battles of the Reformation. We were looking on Protestants as heretics. We were, uh, you know, caught up in our own ghetto and our own uh, way of thinking with without any interest in ecumenism or dialogue or these things. So the Second Vatican Council was a huge change in the Catholic Church. It allowed us to uh, open up so that our, uh, our uh, uh, services were now held in English rather than in Latin. We started encouraging Catholics to read the Bible. Uh, you know, we were afraid if Catholics read the Bible, they might become Protestants. Uh, so just do what Father tells you. No, the Second Vatican Council was a revolution in the Catholic Church in, in terms of ecumenism, in terms of Catholic interests in the Bible, in terms of uh, 
getting commitment to issues of social justice. Uh, it, it was a real change. So remember, okay, I entered before. And uh, in 1962, we looked upon the Jesuits as kind of the Pope's Marines. We were out there fighting the battles for Catholicism. Well, you know, it, I tell you, change is tough on anybody. Uh, every church that goes through change, uh, ex, you know, experiences this. Well, in my case, it was okay. My, my whole attitude, my whole uh, self-identity, my vocation was, you know, came out of this old church. And so it was a really kind of a traumatic experience of changing that and of realizing that, no, God, you know, I may have thought this was the road God wanted me to take, but it's going to be different. Uh, it's not going to be the way I thought it was going to be. Uh, this is a very different church now. It, and, uh, and uh, you know, my job is to help people uh, live and uh, experience this new church. Now, I'll be honest with you, many of my fellow seminarians found that very difficult to take. When I entered the uh, Jesuits in 1962 in Los Gatos, California, I had almost 50 seminarians joining uh, the Jesuits at the same time I did. Uh, most of those left, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. The, uh, the changes in the church, changes in themselves, uh, they decided that they did not, they wanted to get married. Many of, for many of them, that was uh, the reason they left. And of course, in the Catholic Church, we still don't have a married clergy. So if you want to get married, uh, you can't be a priest as you can in the Protestant churches. So many, many of them, uh, in fact, most of them left. Uh, I think out of that 50 today, uh, there's only about 10 of us left and only a couple of them died. So uh, my vocation changed. I had to learn uh, how to pray better. I had to learn uh, to pray over the scriptures, to listen to how God was speaking to me through the scriptures, through my prayer, uh, and learn how to uh, discern uh, the path that God wanted me to take. So that's, uh, that's kind of the the story of my uh, vocation, I became very interested in the church's commitment to social justice, which is why I ended up getting a doctorate in political science from the University of California, Berkeley, uh, so that I would be trained to, to in the areas of, you know, political science. Because if you're going to have justice, uh, social justice, uh, you know, politics is going to be part of achieving that justice for the poor and the marginalized and, and, uh, and, and politics is the way you work for peace too. So in any case, that's, uh, that uh, is uh, kind of the short version of my vocation. Uh, I've, uh, it's been challenging, uh, it hasn't always been easy, uh, but it's something that I, I'm, Glad I chose, glad I did, and I, I'm still enjoying it. Now, before we get a little bit more to the, the Jesuit order, uh, explain for our readers um, and listeners, uh, uh, what is a Billiken? 
it's a mascot of you know the University of St. Louis where you attended. Yes, I don't think anybody ever figured out what a billikin was. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, it's the mascot of uh, St. Louis University where I uh, uh, went for uh, two years in, in part of my collegiate program studying philosophy, a, a topic I grew to hate. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, yeah, the billikins, uh, it's kind of a half of a duck and uh, uh, it looks more like a duck, I think, than anything else. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of like, uh, you know, it occasionally pops up during March Madness when they make the tournament. I think the closest comparison to people's response to it is probably when the Philadelphia Flyers released their uh, new mascot a couple years ago, and everybody was just left with a lot of questions and fear and anxiety as to what they were, what they were seeing. Now, in... Um, in 2018, we had your colleague and fellow Jesuit uh, priest, uh, Father James Martin, on the podcast. First, I asked him if he would be the official chaplain of the podcast since Stephen Colbert had yet to transfer those credentials from the Colbert Report to the Late Show. We haven't heard back from him since that interview. So if you see him, please tell him that offer still stands. Um, secondly, uh, Jim, is, Jim is a Jim's a great friend of mine. I pride myself with the fact that when I was editor of America Magazine, I hired uh, Jim Martin and started him off on his career. He was just wonderful to work with, very creative, very uh, uh, hardworking. Uh, he would come in with some crazy idea that he wanted to do, and I would think, geez, I don't think that's going to work. And I'd say, okay, try it. And he'd go do it, and he'd succeed in doing it. Uh, my job as his boss was simply to encourage him uh, with all his creative ideas, and uh, I was never disappointed. So uh, for our audience, um, help them better understand uh, what makes the Jesuit order distinct. What, what sets it apart from sure. say, uh, the Franciscans, the, uh, uh, the Dominicans? Well, let me first answer a much more basic question. The difference between a religious order priest and a diocesan priest. Most priests in the United States are diocesan priests. That means that they uh, serve a geographical uh, uh, region, a diocese. Most of these, you know, Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, New York, uh, but there, you know, there are smaller ones or, you know, uh, Anchorage, Alaska is huge in geographical space, but very small in population. So they, diocesan priests work under a bishop and serve a, uh, a local geographical uh, community. Uh, and that's, you know, that's where they spend their entire ministry for all practical purposes. Uh, religious order priests, on the other hand, uh, they don't join a diocese or a diocesan seminary, they join a religious order and enter what's called a novitiate, which is a training uh, period for uh, people who want to be in a religious community. And in uh, the, the key difference, uh, one of the key differences between religious orders priests and diocesan priests is religious order priests live in a community. Uh, for the most part. And so they live together as a community. They have a uh, common mission uh, that they're committed to, but
but it isn't a geographical territory. It can be, uh, you know, a ministry anywhere in the world. Uh, and the, the living in community is a key part of it. Diocesan priests tend to live, you know, in the parish. And these days there's, there's hardly ever more than one priest uh, at a parish. Uh, whereas uh, a Jesuit community, I mean, we can, you know, we can have uh, uh, three, five, ten, a dozen, twenty, uh, fifty uh, people uh, living together in a community, doing uh, sometimes uh, sharing uh, ministries and apostolates, and sometimes uh, uh, doing uh, uh, all sorts of different things. One now you you ask okay there are a number of different kinds of religious orders as Franciscans Benedictines Dominicans uh, Jesuits each of them was founded at a historical time where they kind of brought something unique and important to the church I would I sometimes uh, use the analogy from the business community uh, to say that religious orders are the ultimate entrepreneurial institutions in the Catholic Church. You know, the dioceses are organized uh, kind of bureaucracies or uh, that, you know, keep doing kind of the same things uh, over and over again, you know, baptizing, uh, catechizing, uh, celebrating the Eucharist, preaching, marrying, uh, and burying, uh, you know, the whole life cycle uh, of the community. Religious orders, on the other hand, uh, tend to come in at a time when there's a need for change. So, of course, for the Franciscans were uh, were classic in this because they came at a time when the the church had a leadership that was uh, somewhat corrupt uh, and sometimes very corrupt. And because of the riches that the church had accumulated, uh, and so. Francis came in and the Franciscans to preach poverty uh, in the church, to teach a more simple lifestyle, a commitment to the poor, uh, as Pope Francis says, a poor church for the poor. This was kind of the message of the Franciscans. And it was very much needed at that time. Frankly, it's a message we still need today. Uh, the Dominicans, on the other hand, came along at a time when uh, there was very little preaching. You know, uh, Protestants are always much better at preaching uh, uh, sometimes than Catholics are and Catholic priests uh, because we depended on just, oh, we have the sacrament, we have the mass. But Dominicans recognized the importance of preaching the word. And so uh, that was a very important charism uh, and mission uh, for the Dominicans, bringing that back as an important mission in the church and emphasizing it. Uh, the Jesuits came along, uh, you know, right around the same time as the Reformation. Now, some people say that we were founded to fight the, <laughs> fight the Reformation, fight the Protestants. I think it was much more coincidental than that, that uh, we, we arose at the same time. Uh, St. Ignatius, uh, was committed to a number of missions. Uh, for one, you know, it was uh, a missionary uh, uh, thrust of the Jesuits to go around the world preaching the gospel in Japan and China. Are uh, one of our earliest saints and uh, companions of Saint Ignatius was Saint Francis Xavier, 
who of course went to India and then uh, to, uh, uh, you know, wanted to go to China and Japan. Uh, and so, uh, uh, and then there were many, many missionaries, Jesuit missionaries that followed in his footsteps to Latin America and elsewhere, spreading the gospel uh, to uh, uh, the four corners of the earth. Uh, a second ministry that we got very much involved in was education, because what happened was it was really responding to the demands of the people. We would go into a city, found a uh, uh, a, a community which would usually be uh, build a church or have a church, take over a church, <clears throat> and start preaching and doing the sacraments. And then people uh, came and uh, wanted to join us, so we said okay. And then we started educating them and training them. And then uh, people who didn't want to be Jesuits said, "Well, yeah, but we'd like to get educated too. You know, can can uh, can my son go to your classes?" And then we kind of said, oh, well, okay, I guess so. And suddenly we started founding schools. Uh, we were the first free education uh, program in Europe uh, because you had, you know, prior to the Jesuits, you had to, uh, you know, you had to pay for an education. There was no public school system. And basically, we would go into a town, and the people would say, we, we need schools. We want you to run a school. And we'd say, okay. And we'd you know, raise the money from the, the nobles or the, the, the merchants of the town to create a school and not charge tuition for it. One of the sad things about Jesuit education today in the United States is we now have to charge tuition, uh, incredibly high tuition, sadly. Uh, but in any case, that's how we got into education, simply because people asked us to. Uh, and then uh, throughout these ministries, we we're also very much in uh, helping people learn how to pray and how to uh, discern in their own lives what the Lord was calling them to. Uh, it, was, it was kind of the first time in the Catholic Church, at least at that time, where the encouragement was for a person to reflect and listen to the spirit. Now we got in trouble for that because people thought we were talking like Protestants. You know, they say, you don't have to listen. Our opponents would say, you don't have to listen to the spirit, just do whatever the priest or bishop tells you to do. Uh, and we said, no, 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 no. Lay people have to be treated like adults. They also hear the spirit and they, they have a specific vocation, and our job is to help them discern that and find that. So this is, these are the kinds of things that Jesuits have been involved in. And in the uh, 20th century, uh, we also uh, got very committed to the mission of justice and peace around the world, working for justice for the poor and the marginalized. We have a very big program internationally uh, in terms of helping refugees. Uh, you know, there's a lot of refugee camps around the world. And one of the things we do is uh, we, you know, the old education uh, ministry, setting up schools. And because, you know, originally we thought these refugees, oh, they're, you know, they're going to stay here for a couple months and then they'll go back wherever they're from. Well, now we're finding that refugees are staying in these camps for, for decades. And the children, if they 
if they if they don't have an education, they're uh, impoverished uh, as a result. So we've gotten involved in education programs in refugee camps. So these are, you know, Jesuits basically do a lot of different things. Myself, I mean, I got into the whole job of writing uh, first with For America magazine, which is a Jesuit publication, uh, and uh, and then I began writing for other uh, uh, organizations, the National Catholic Reporter, and now uh, for Religion News Service, which is kind of an ecumenical wire service. We cover religion news of all types, uh, Baptist, uh, Mormons, uh, uh, Muslim, you know, any anytime religion makes the news, uh, we cover it uh, at Religion News Service. So uh, uh, I live, I live with, uh, uh, with a Jesuit who is chaplain to the House of Representatives. So uh, I, ha I live with another Jesuit who uh, works at uh, Georgetown University Law School. So there's all sorts of difference. Another man I live with works with Jesuit, uh, Jesuit Refugee Service. So, uh, and then of course, I'm living at a high school, uh, in a high school community. So we have Jesuits who are working in the, uh, the high school here at Gonzaga High School in Washington, DC. So uh, Jesuits are involved in a lot of things, uh, basically trying to figure out what's uh, the best way we can advance the kingdom. Uh, and each of us is different with our abilities and our uh, uh, talents. And so we have to listen to how God is calling us uh, within the Jesuit community to work uh, in service of his kingdom. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. Well, you just touched on so many uh, incredible things that have been credited to the Jesuits. Um, research and kind of history has shown uh, Jesuits were involved with fighting to save Jews during the Holocaust. Um, you know, as you touched on, establishing hundreds of, of schools of higher education around the world that have uh, impacted millions of lives. I know that you have taken a vow of humility, but what makes the Jesuits the most remarkable order of all the orders? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, uh, I don't want to toot our horn too loudly. I mean, I love the Jesuits, but I also respect and love the other religious communities. I think each of us brings our own little thing, our own little talents and and gifts uh, to the Catholic Church. And uh, but I think one of the one of the things that has helped the Jesuits is because we've been so involved in education 
it's required that our members be highly educated. Uh, we probably have more PhDs per capita uh, than any other group uh, in the world, simply because of uh, the need to, to uh, have people uh, highly educated uh, who can w work in our uh, universities and uh, high schools uh, around the world. So that that educational background, I think, is is extremely important. The other that uh, is so important is the spirituality of Saint Ignatius Loyola. Um, his, you know, his spiritual exercises have been a great great gift to the church. Many uh, orders of religious women uh, have uh, sprung up uh, using his uh, spiritual exercises and his spirituality. And again, as I said earlier. The thrust of his spirituality was for uh, each person to pray and listen to the Lord and find what their vocation, what God is calling them to do, and how to how to pray, how to practice the virtues, how to how to become free, uh, so that we can listen to the Lord and and uh, and and do His work. And uh, so I think I think those are, are gifts that the the Jesuits bring uh, to the church uh, that I think are are unique. As you touched on earlier, you uh, have a PhD in political science from the University of California, Berkeley, and your expertise in this area certainly comes across in your writing. In the last month alone, you've written about uh, Greta Thunberg, uh, Nancy Pelosi's prayer life for Donald Trump. Um, powers to the Office of Finance at the Vatican, global warming, um, and issues with DACA. I wonder wh what drew you towards political science, and, and what kind of voice are you trying to give to these things in a theological manner? Yeah, I, I think that uh, I've always kind of been interested in politics. I think my uh, uh, my father was uh, uh, interest in politics. My family was so. I think I kind of developed an interest uh, uh, at the dinner table uh, in terms of politics, and uh, I was always kind of interested in the news and keeping up to date uh, uh, on what was happening in the world. Uh, so I think you know it began early in my life. But I think that it really became a vehicle for my concern about justice. Uh, you know, I grew up, you know, white middle class family in suburban Los Angeles County. Uh, you know, I did, my parents were, uh, you know, they lived through the depression uh, and, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, we're able to get an education and uh, we're able to uh, support me and my, uh, my brothers and sister. Uh, but, you know, there was, I always kind of understood that there was, you know, a need to give back. I mean, I think that's something I, I don't know, I absorbed it from the nuns or from my family. My father, for example, worked with Catholic Big Brothers and uh, uh, other C uh, CYO in, in Los Angeles uh, and uh, worked as a lawyer, you know, helping these organizations and stuff. And uh, 
my mother was a public school teacher, uh, actually in Dean of Girls. So she, we used to hear all the stories about the bad girls in her school who, who weren't all that bad. In fact, she liked them, uh, liked them all. So, I mean, there was just this kind of interest. And, and I think as, uh, as I began to pray more, as I began to listen to the Gospels and see Jesus's concern for the poor, the hungry, uh, the sick, uh, I just became committed to that this is an essential aspect of the gospel message and that we ought to be concerned about it. And I saw that, you know, uh, there, you know, you can do that by direct service to the poor, you know, with food kitchens, with uh, pantries, with, you know, uh, shelters, you know, uh, on the, on the local level, but you can also do it you know, by being concerned about structural change that makes the world more just. Uh, and I, you know, I decided because of my talents, personality, that that was the way I was going to go. And that's why I got the degree in political science, uh, so that I could work, um, you know, uh, in, in a way that would bring st structural change to America and to the world that would lead to uh, more peace, uh, more justice, uh, more equity in the world. Uh, in fact, my first job uh, after I was ordained and finished my doctorate was working for a uh, tax reform lobby. Uh, you, know, you wonder, what the hell is a Catholic priest working for a tax reform lobby? But it was that very thing. I mean, if there's one, if there's a institution or structure in the United States that can bring about greater equity and fairness and equality, that's the tax system. Uh, to make it more fair, more equitable, uh, more just. Uh, and that's, you know, and I spent three years uh, doing that. I was not very successful, obviously, uh, but uh, it was a real education. It was a wonderful experience uh, working on the Hill, testifying, working with uh, with really smart economists and lawyers, uh, trying to make the case for a much more just system. But, you know, when it was just little old me against all the millions of dollars spent by, uh, uh, you know, uh, special interests, you know, fighting to protect their loopholes or get bigger ones. Uh, it was a it was a tough tough uh, battle, uh, and uh, but uh, it was also uh, uh, learned. You know, taught me the importance of the written word, uh, both through testimony and news stories and that, uh, which led me into my next career as a writer. You wrote a piece um, recently um, uh, on climate uh, activist uh, Greta Thunberg, and uh, this fell around the time that Donald Trump attacked the teenager on Twitter after she won Times Person of the Year. Um, Greta's been given, um, she's giving a new voice to global warming crisis, especially for someone um, you know, who's only 16, 17 years old. Um, you wrote, scientists tell us that oceans are rising, cities will be inundated, weather patterns will change, millions of people will suffer, the damage we are doing to Mother Earth may be impossible to heal. As Pope Francis says, doomsday predictions 
can no longer be met with irony or disdain. How, how does the church uh, grapple with global warming as a theological issue? And, and how does the church respond theologically in action? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and I think it's one we're still trying to think through. I think on a very simple level, we have to see all of creation as God's handiwork. Uh, and, you know, and it's something, you know, it's his piece of art. Uh, and we have to respect it and honor it and treasure it and preserve it and not just uh, deface it and destroy it. Um, and it's, you know, and it's a unique uh, piece of artwork. It's an icon. You know, in, in the Orthodox uh, uh, churches, uh, you know, icons are seen as images of God. Well, creation is an image of God. It's, it's a, one of the ways we get to know the beauty, the grandeur, uh, the power of God is by contemplating uh, his creation. And if we deface it, it's like defacing an icon. Uh, you know, so I think we can talk and you know, these are theological concepts. These are theological symbols that we can use, I think, in talking about uh, the importance of protecting the environment. Um, so on, on that level. Secondly, I think that on a, just a simple uh, moral level, you know, as I said in that article, climate change is going to impact the lives of millions of people uh, for generations. And, uh, you know, if that's why it is an ethical and moral issue, because it has an impact on lives. We're not just talking about, you know, baby seals or, uh, or uh, lizards. Uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, people uh, starving. I mean, just take a look at India alone you know, one of the largest countries in the world in population. Well, it is very dependent on the rivers that come down uh, from the Himalayas. Well, if those glaciers in the Himalayas melt away, where are they going to get, where are these millions of people going to get water? You know, the monsoons only come for, you know, a certain time of the year and then it, they go and they, they don't have dams and things to catch it. They depend very much on these rivers. And this is true around the world where uh, what's going to happen when glaciers melt away? Uh, you know, people aren't going to have water. And, uh, you know, and uh, I argue that, you know, you think we have more refugees today than we have ever had in recent, you know, in the last uh, century or more. Um, and yet we are gonna have more refugees, climate change refugees. I mean, people in the Pacific Islands are gonna be underwater. They're gonna have to go somewhere. People in Bangladesh are gonna be underwater. They're gonna have to go somewhere. <laughs> people in parts of Florida are gonna be underwater and they're gonna have to go somewhere. That's what we call refugees. Uh, people who have to leave where their homes because they've been destroyed. Uh, it, this is this is a moral issue, and you know, Christianity is about respecting human life and 
and uh, uh, being a moral person. And if we if we just simply ignore what's happening to the world because of global warming, uh, then I mean we are not being Christian. We are you know we have obligations to future generations, and we are. You know, we are pillaging the earth for our own life to to support our own lifestyles, and you know, basically stealing from our grandchildren and great 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 grandchildren, uh, because when they come along, uh, the planet is going to be devastated. This is, you know, this is this is an essential message, moral message that the churches have to preach about, have to deal with. You know, uh, Christianity from the very beginning, from the words of Jesus, have been have been about conversion. You know, con, you know, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Those are the opening words of of Jesus when he started preaching, and you know that has to be the uh, the words coming out of every minister's, every Christian minister's mouth. Repent. You know, the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, we are, this is a devastating uh, what we are doing to the world and we have to change. And if, you know, if there's one thing Christianity is all about, it's conversion. And frankly, this is what we need. People aren't, you know, we're just not, we don't get it. Um, people, uh think, well, you know, why should I do it? Nobody else is. Well, that's like saying, why should I be a moral Christian? Why should I be a good Christian? Nobody else is. Or what, you know, why should I uh, cut, you know, cut my carbon footprint? Everybody else is burning up. I won't make any difference. The trouble is when, you know, uh, a billion people all say, I can't make any difference. I won't do anything. Well, then we're in. We end up where we are right now. Uh, Christianity is has always called people to sacrifice, to repentance, to taking the narrow path, to going through the narrow door, uh, to do things not because everybody else is doing them, but doing things because it's right uh, for us to do it. And I think that's. Uh, that's what we, we, we should be, Christians should be leaders in responding to uh, uh, climate change and global warming. Politics has been, we say it's a microcosm of our culture and politics is so toxic and divisive and polarizing right now. And for many, this is how they see the church, uh, the church universal. Every tradition has its own vices and conflicts that um, have caused this. And this is why many theologians and historians have said that we are now living in a, a post-church or post-Christendom world. Uh, people are divorcing the church and they're not coming back. Um, the Protestant uh, Protestants of all traditions are wrestling with this reality. Uh, I imagine the Catholic Church is as well. So how does the church come to terms um, with this new day and age we find ourselves in that really we haven't been in for 1600 years? And, and where do we go from here? Well, I think the Catholic Church has a special obligation uh, to try and uh, deal with the toxic uh, political culture that we have today. Uh, the reason I say that is because the Catholic Church really is the only major 
denomination that is split almost 50-50 with Democrats and Republicans. Uh, You know, so we've got them all. Uh, And I think that as a result, we need real leadership in the Catholic Church to bring Catholic Democrats and Catholic Republicans together so that we can model what it means to overcome this kind of toxic political culture that we have in America today. Uh, you know, uh, and I, you know, this is, this is not going to be easy. Uh, I did a column uh, in uh, uh, January on this topic. Uh, and I, there's, it's, I, it's not going to be easy. Uh, For example, you know, we have a whole uh, collection of teaching, what we call Catholic social teaching. And frankly, it doesn't fit either political party. Uh, The Democrats don't like it because uh, it opposes abortion. Uh, Republicans don't like it because it acknowledges a role for the state to play in dealing with economic and social problems and, you know, helping caring for the poor. So neither party, uh, you know, neither uh, party is comfortable with everything in Catholic social teaching, which may mean that, you know, this is a good way to bring people together to talk. Maybe we could bring people together to talk about uh, Catholics together to talk about Catholic social teaching. now, we have to figure out how to do that in a way that doesn't turn into a shouting match uh, where people retreat to their partisan corners and throw rocks at each other. Uh, you know, one of the, we need our, our uh, we need people who are uh, trained moderators to uh, uh, facilitate this kind of conversation. And I think, you know, our pastors and our seminarians need much more training into how to moderate these kinds of conversations, because we tend to train our pastors to come up with the answers rather than to facilitate a conversation and a dialogue. But at the same time, Catholic Church has a lot of experience in ecumenical and interreligious dialogues. And I think some of the things we've learned from the ecumenical dialogue we should bring into, uh, and all Christians can do this, bring this into uh, our political discussions. You know, the same kind, you know, the same kind of models and uh, and tactics and procedures that we use in ecumenical dialogue, I think we ought to try and use those in our, uh, in, in, in beginning a political dialogue, a political conversation. Um, I think the other th- thing that uh, we need to do is to, uh, you know, to break bread together. I mean, you know, this is a great Christian tradition. You know, get a, get a couple of Democratic politicians, a couple of Republican politicians, and have an off-the-record dinner uh, with their pastor or with their bishop. And, uh, you know, and... And and then just have a conversation together. And don't don't talk politics. Talk about you know what's my faith mean to me and my family. Uh, what's you know Jesus is called to love uh, God and neighbor. What's that mean to me? And how do I try and live that out? 
uh, how does my faith uh, impact my the way I see the world? You know, topics like that where you share your faith uh, in a nonpartisan way, and and you get to know the other person as a Christian and you know as a person of faith, and you know, and then you can say, well, you know, I really disagree with him or her on political issues, but I really, I admire and respect. I mean, his faith story is really uh, remarkable. You know, the way he, you know, the way his faith helped him through various crises and things and, and guided him during his life. And that's admirable. Well, you know, you can't hate somebody who, if you've listened to their faith story and really listened and been touched by it, you can't hate that person anymore. And I think that's what we need to do. And I think Catholics are uniquely situated to do this because like I say, you know, about half of Catholics are Republican, about half are Democrat, which is not true in, in most of the other denominations. The final thing that I think we need to do is get Catholics and, or Catholic Republicans and Catholic Democrats together uh, working on common projects. Uh, you know, uh, Democrats and Republicans disagree on the role of the state in helping poor people, the sick, uh, the marginalized. But if you're a Christian, you can't uh, disagree and say we should simply let them suffer and die. And the Catholic Church has had a long tradition of Catholic charities both on the diocesan and, pa and parish level, uh, organizations like the St. Vincent de Paul the, and others, uh, the CYO, other organizations. Well, you know, you get Catholic uh, Republicans and Democrats working together to help uh, people. You know, you, you bond. This is especially true of men. You know, they, they get to know each other by working together. Uh, and you grow in respect and friendship through that kind of activity. So, so it's a good activity in and of itself, period. We should be doing it, period. But it's also a way of, you know, you see, oh, you know, that Republican, you know, I thought he was hated the poor, and yet he's, he's putting in more hours at this uh, shelter than I, this liberal Democrat, am. You know, that's, that's the way I think we can, it's, you know, it seems small, but we have to start somewhere, you know, in, in crossing the divide and, and uh, uh, getting to know one another. If we simply retreat into our ghettos, uh, if we, you know, into, the, into our corners and, and uh, throw rocks at one another, uh, things are going to get worse. And I think we, we, we churches have a special obligation to think about, okay, how do we bring people together to listen, to have conversation, uh, to respect one another, and even love one another? I mean, we're supposed to love our enemies. Can't we love people in the other party? Uh, come on, you know, uh, this is, this is uh, what Christians have been called to. I guess finally, the news cycle revolves around these days, Trump, the Iranian conflict, China trade wars, impeachment scandals, global warming. 
Tell us about some of the unseen work being done by good Catholics around the world. Well, I think there's a lot of examples of that. Uh, in the United States, you know, uh, every diocese has a Catholic Charities Office, and most parishes have some kind of program uh, to help poor people to, you know, whether it's a food drive or or a pantry or it's a lot of, you know, in the Northeast, a lot of parishes will open up their basement or their hall, you know, for uh, people to come in and sleep there at night uh, because it's, you know, it's freezing outside. Uh, so there's, there's lots of those kinds of programs, uh, you know, tutorial programs for kids. You know, these, these don't, these never make the front page of the newspaper. Uh, they, they don't get coverage. Uh, but certainly, you know, the, the schools, especially the schools that we struggle to maintain in, in poor neighborhoods are, are really, really so important. Um, you know, my brother actually is president of a Jesuit high school in San Francisco, St. Ignatius uh, Prep. And he previously, he was president of uh, Brophy Prep in, in Phoenix. And in both schools, he started a, uh, you know, it's a high school, but they started a middle school that's attached to the high school. And it's only for poor kids, uh, you know, and, and uh, so what they're doing is, is every year they accept 36 graders and then they, you know, it goes up the line, they become seventh, eighth, and, uh, and then they, they go into the high school. The, the thing is, they are then, they're preparing them to do the high school work. So often, uh, our schools would accept uh, poor kids or minority kids into the high school, but they really couldn't compete. They weren't ready. And so my brother said, well, if nobody else is going to prepare them, we will. And so he's done, he did that at Brophy Prep in Phoenix and, uh, and now again in uh, St. Ignatius Prep in San Francisco. And in Brophy Prep, it's been in place long enough. They've had a couple of uh, classes now graduate from high school. And these kids, they're all going to college. Uh, they're all, uh, you know, one of them is going to one of the uh, military academies. Uh, you know, they do very well. But, you know, they're on full scholarship. Uh, my brother's a, a good fundraiser, and he, uh, he was able to get these things uh, supported. Uh, because when they come, you know, he gives them a full scholarship from sixth grade all the way through high school. Uh, and what they discovered is that's not enough. They also have to have uh, uh, breakfast and lunch for them. They have to, yeah, they have to get them glasses. Uh, they have to get them to doctors. They have to get them uh, clothes, uh, the, just the whole nine yards. And what he's been able to do is get the alumni and get the parents of the other kids involved. Uh, you know, he got the, the mother's club to outfit all the kids in, in uh, tan pants and polo shirts and other, you know, whatever other clothes they needed. So, uh, you know, this, this will never make the newspaper, but this is the kind of thing that people on the ground can do. And certainly in the United States and abroad, the sisters have been extraordinary in working in hospitals, in AIDS clinics, and uh, uh, 
in, in all sorts of poverty programs and educational programs around the world, uh, you know, uh, uh, this is, ex it, you know, extremely, uh, they, they are uh, the heart of uh, the Catholic Church and its ministry uh, to the poor and do extraordinary uh, work everywhere uh, in the world, you know, everybody from Mother Teresa to all sorts of other uh, sisters uh, working around the world uh, to help people. So these these things don't get uh, publicity. They don't get uh, uh, reported. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist. I know uh, the only thing that makes the front page is bad news. Uh, good news does not make the front page. And scandal and, and uh, controversy and all that is what makes news. And when Christians are going around actually loving people and doing right, uh, it's, it's just not news. Well, if you want to stay connected with Father Thomas Reese, you can see his work at religionnews.com. Of course, follow him on Twitter at Thomas Reese SJ. Father Reese, thank you for bringing a voice of theological reason into our chaotic and divisive world through your profound humility, wisdom, and love. Thank you. You're too generous, and I, I really enjoyed being on your, your podcast. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for Conversations That Matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.